This is case 62 from the Shirokum. Me who's enlightenment or not. The introduction. Bodhidharma's highest truth. Emperor's Wu's confusion. Vimalakirti's teaching of non-duality. Manjushri's verbal excess. Is there anyone who has the ability to enter inactivity? Case. Mihu had asked Yangshan. Sorry, Mihu had a monk who went to ask Yangshan, do people these days need enlightenment or not? Yangshan said, it's not that there is no enlightenment, but what can be done about falling into the secondary? The monk went back and reported this to Mihu. Mihu deeply agreed. The verse. The secondary, distinguishing enlightenment, breaking up delusion. Quickly, you should free your hands and relinquish net and traps. Accomplishment, before it's exhausted, becomes an extra thumb. Wisdom can hardly know, like you cannot bite your own navel. The full moon icy disk sweeps in the autumn dew. The birds are cold in the jade tree. The dawn breeze is chill. Brought forth, great young distinguishes real and false. Completely without flaw, the white jade is esteemed. up today because about 2500 years ago December 8th a few days ago Siddhartha Gautama experienced great awakening and set in motion a practice tradition we call Buddhism this single experience of completely dropping away everything, waking up to naked reality, that experience constitutes the, the birth of our practice. And yet in this case, this monk is asking Yangshan, Do people these days need enlightenment or not? What is it? Right? You know, if we if we look at a question of a need, do we need this or not? If we bring this question up, we have to look at what is it that we're asking about? Do we understand it? The question. We need to bring this question up, but we need to be very careful in the way we handle it. And be careful to not get trapped by yes or no. Because if you say yes, 
true self becomes something that can be gotten or lost. And on the other hand, we say no. We deny the Buddha's realization and subsequent teaching and the practice. Either way, we fall into the second. Buddha means awakened, kensho, or enlightenment, is the hallmark of our tradition, this wisdom tradition. But enlightenment is just a word that can at best point So the question is, how do we understand that which is, it is pointing at? And how we understand the practice is tied up with how do we understand realization? Or in other words, the way we practice is the way we realize. So our attention should be pointed at or towards the practice itself. Not the thoughts about practice, uh, concepts, beliefs, myths. So going back to the life of the Buddha, Siddhartha, We're all familiar with the story, but it's good to go back to this and examine it. How did he reach that? How did he, what kind of experiences he had before having that experience of totally dropping away? of opening up the hand. Siddhartha grew up as a, as a prince, sheltered, not on purpose, not being exposed to real life, in a way, or being exposed to partial experiences of And then at some point, he was able to get out of the palace and encounter sickness, old age, death, and also encounter a practitioner of the way, of a way, a spiritual practitioner. Four experiences that are that were noted to have began transformation in him, which eventually led him to give everything up 
leave his family, palace, shave his head, and venture out to the unknown. To go from being comfortable to from a place of having all our needs met to not knowing. to stepping to the uncomfortable. The way to mess with everything that was near and dear to him. To leave it all behind. He then practiced with ascetics for about six years. and got to a point and he was very good at it. He was able to survive on a couple of grains of rice a day. And they did that because they actually believed that by starving the body, by denying the body, the needs of the body, one can reach a high state of realization spirituality. So he tried that. He didn't just read about it. He actually went all out. He actually fully embraced asceticism. Getting to a point of being the best he could. And it did not lead him to, or closer to, realization. It did not come the questions that led him to live home, to shave his head, to go out and, and seek an answer to human life, to what we encounter, to how we live. the restlessness we feel. So then one day he was just about to get some water from the river, drink. He was so weak he fell in the water and almost drowned. And the story tells us that Sujata, the milkmaid, who happened to pass by, reached out to him, pulled him out of the water, and took care of him, fed him. Gave him some milk, some rice. He was able to recuperate. And that single act of compassion made him realize that asceticism is not the way. Hedonism is not the way. Asceticism is not the way. What is the way? What is neither getting trapped in going all out with giving the body everything it wants and on the other hand giving it nothing, denying 
all the bodies needs, all the minds needs. With that, he set foot on a different journey. And then on the night of December 8th, He sat under the Bodhi tree. And after a long night of facing the demons, he saw the morning star and for the first time <clears throat> was awakened to reality as it is. And during that night, he faced it all. did not try to run away, did not try to create alternate realities. In fact, he did not try to do anything. And he did not sit thinking, I'll just sit for a couple of periods, then do some kinhin and then maybe go grab lunch. He sat with a decision to not get up until he is fully realized. To remain unmoved as Mara came by trying to tempt him, to unseat him. And then the last trial, Mara came by and you know the story, right? And, okay, let's say you realize whatever it is you think you're going to realize. Who's going to prove that? Or who's going to stamp this experience? And he touched the ground and he said, this ground is my witness. I don't need anyone else to approve of it. Because when you know, you know. And when you look at everything that he went through, All his life, right, including life as a prince, life as an ascetic. All the ingredients of his life prior to his great awakening were necessary catalysts of the process. what seems like exploring extremes. First, not by choice. He was brought up this way. That was the decision of his father. But then by choice to leave it behind. By choice to explore the path of completely denying the body. And then by choice to leave that path. 
and delve to the bottom of this or die trying. So the question is for us, maybe the, the most important question, do we see our practice in the same way? Do we see all the ingredients of our lives as necessary catalysts for transformation, for awakening, without picking and choosing, without saying, here are the experiences I want, and here are those which I prefer to not have. Also experiences in the past that, not just now, but what we went through individually in our childhood, later on in life. Regrets. Holding on to ideas of how things should have been. How can we know Based on what can we say that what we went through was not necessary? What are the parameters? Who's judging? So his total devotion, Buddha's total devotion, is apparent, is very clear in this story. You know, we, we focus on the moment of the realization, on the moment of everything being shed off, everything being dropped off. But everything up to that moment and going forward, everything is precious ingredient in our practice. Without judging it, without defining it, so can you trust that all of it, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the desired, the repulsive, Everything contributes to creating your spiritual life, your spiritual journey. No should or should not, without setting rules to follow. No dogma to adhere to. No structure. Can we welcome all ingredients? Can we see them as opportunities to go deeper? And learn to walk with them in a way that accelerates the deepening process. Rejecting nothing. Embracing all. It's something that we don't often look at in the life of the Buddha, but you read about it and you look at it and you sit with it you actually realize that nothing was rejected. 
even by turning away from and leaving his family behind. There was no rejection. In fact, he was embracing life. How to see that? How could an act of leaving the family behind, right? How, how can that be embracing? Embracing compassion, those, those words are just words, but it doesn't always happen the way we think it needs to happen. Compassion is not always a hug. And embracing is not always holding on to things and smiling at everything. If we understand what it is that we are embracing, what it is that we are practicing. You know, it's so easy to lose the momentum and, and ponder. Dropping everything, not practicing, quitting. It's so easy to get caught up in our judgmental thinking and render the practice as not worthy. It's too much, it's a lot. It's requiring, it requires so much of me. Why should I do it? Right? We do with the practice as we do with everything else, right? We measure it, quantify, pass judgment. And then we end up believing that what we think actually represents what's happening. You know, we chant in the Sandokai, do not judge by any standards. There are no standards. But when we judge, we don't actually stop and consider what are the parameters. Who is setting those up? We just get caught up in judging. And when we judge, it's so easy to quit. But if we don't understand what it is that we are practicing, then quitting is, of course, an option. When we actually do understand what we practice, quitting what? Embracing what? Those are the questions. You know, to shift attention from one thing to another doesn't really mean not to practice, it means to shift attention, that's all. You know, what we need to do is learn how to practice continuously. 
if there is any one single thing to learn from the Buddha's life, is that. Then he did not stop practicing. He did not stop deepening after that moment of awakening. Throughout his life, he kept practicing. He kept deepening. And actually, Mara kept coming back to visit him in disguise, in different ways, often as a friend, trying to see if maybe he changed his mind. Maybe he's exhausted, tired, all these people coming to see him, all these people to guide, to teach. Aren't you tired of this? Look at them. You keep teaching them, but they don't get it. Is it worth your time? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? So it's creating an option. I think that the way we practice is the most important thing in this practice. How do we maintain it? Is it constant? Is it continuous? Is it 24 hours a day? Or is it touch and go? We are we have to understand that we are working with tremendous amount of resistance to the practice and a very thick wall of conditioning. And if we don't stay with it and look at it and look at it and look at it, fully determined, then we will not break through. It just won't happen. Not because it's not possible, not because it's not available. Just because we don't know how to stick with it, no matter what. We understand intellectually a lot. There's a huge gap between understanding intellectually something and actually feeling it in the gut. And the breakthrough happens only when we feel it in the gut. Many times people quit before they feel it at that level. Because intellectually, there are many forces that are there to try to unseat from this seat. To push us back to the comfort zone. And we have to go the other way. As the Buddha did leaving his family, leaving the home. Out of the comfort into that which is not comfortable, which is which seems threatening. And it is threatening to rob us of everything we care about. 
But there's no other way. Remember that movie, uh, Good Will Hunting. <coughs> you may remember the scene where Robin Williams, who's playing the clinical psychologist, is standing in front of Matt Damon during one of the therapy sessions, after many sessions actually, where he was trying to break through Matt Damon's rigid shell. And in reference to rough experiences from his childhood, he said to him, it's not your fault. Everything that happened to him in his past, he was basically referring to that, saying, you know, this is not your fault. His father's abuse, everything he went through. And Matt Damon said, yes, I know. And then Robin Williams kept inching closer and closer to him looked at him in the eyes and said again, it's not your fault. And then, and then again said, I know. And he get closer and closer and closer to him and then cornered him. And then Matt Damon started to feel very uncomfortable. He said, I know. He said, don't push me. And then he kept saying, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Until it went from an intellectual understanding of it's not my fault to filling it in the gut, in the center. And then he started sobbing. Everything came down crushing. Everything opened up for the first time. He knew it's not his fault, but he didn't know it's not his fault. It's a big difference there. This is that, that moment where things are starting to push us, whether it's a teacher or the practice or our own judgments. At that moment, we have to learn to stick with it because at that moment, the one thing we want to do is check out. The only thing we want to do is actually run away from it because it's not comfortable. And those are the most important moments of practice. And I can tell you from experience, working with people, that there are people that are no longer here, practicing with us, exactly because of that. Because it got to a point that they needed to step further away from the comfort zone. And that was the line which they refused to cross. But again, there's no other way. You know, the process of practice is, is, is like that. You know, take for example impermanence, right? Conceptually, everybody knows that this skin bag is disintegrating. It's a temporal resonance, right? Eventually we die. Everybody knows that. But how many people truly 
experience that at the core and how many people actually live by that understanding. Because if we do, if we, if we did live by that understanding, there will never be wars. People are not going to fight each other. For what? Realizing that impermanence means no separate existence. Period. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how many people approve of you. You are not what you think you are. In fact, you're not even here. Solves everything. All the anxieties end. So to understand what I talked about it too, to, that this is one of the most difficult things for us because everybody knows that eventually, of course, we die. Everybody knows most than not. Not intellectually, but in actuality, in the way we live our life. You look at not what people say, but the way they act, the way they speak. The actions and the words are not in alignment with an understanding that we are temporal, we are ephemeral, we are disintegrating. The actions and the words are actually in alignment with separate existence, with I'm going to live forever. It sounds stupid, but Because that's what we defend. That which we think is separate. But to truly understand the implication of impermanence is to understand that there is no self. You also may have a conceptual understanding of being one with all things. Right? That's what the teachings tell us. You know, but being locked up in the concept of oneness, we can't even imagine how it feels like to actually experience being one with all things. So we chant over and over again, now return to oneness. We practice it over and over again through daily zazen. We delve into koan study, which is designed to mess with our conceptual cocoon. And then we help each other stay on track by maintaining a sangha. And all this is, is done just so we can break down the conceptual understanding and dive into a tangible and physical experience of oneness, which we call Kensho, realization, awakening. And even that experience is not a static, one-time breakthrough. 
Because body and mind drop away. And then, dropping away is also dropping away. Even Kensha is not fixed. It may be a moment in time, but the moment is time. And time is continuous. So there is no moment in time. This is just a conceptual interruption or an illusion. But we let go and then we let go of letting go. It's an endless dynamic process. And actual enlightenment is like nothing we imagine or perceive it to be. You know, the Buddha saw the morning star. He said, wonder of wonders, I, all beings, the great earth, are the wisdom and virtue of the awakened one to dustness. You know, what he saw was not new. And although we may say that this was the birth of Buddhism, nothing began at that point. He just had an experience of being merged with totality. Being merged with the flow that did not begin at that moment. When, when the veneer of the made-up self falls away, we actually experience life as itself in its fullest. But the fullness of life has never been reduced, even when we live in the darkness of delusion. It's always been this way. It's always been this way. There's a dialogue with national teacher, Jean, who asked an imperial attendant monk, what does Buddha mean? The monk said, it means enlightenment. National teacher said, has the Buddha ever been deluded? He said, no, never, Delude, never deluded. National teacher said, then what's the use of enlightenment? The imperial attendant monk had no reply. What's the use of enlightenment? Or maybe we should ask, what's the use of delusion? Because if we raise enlightenment as something that is separate, or separated from, then we also raise delusion. We raise delusion, we raise enlightenment. And we raise a gap. And the secondary is born. And it's very difficult to see because it happens so automatically and so quickly. With one thought. As soon as the mind moves, the secondary is born. 
gaps are made up. But the Buddha has never been deluded. And what the Buddha realized did not just happen at that moment. And our responsibility is to investigate what makes up this veneer, the veneer we call me. What is it? What is me? And what gives it validity? You know, unless we investigate this thoroughly, wonder of wonders, is not available to us. It's available all the time, just not to us. Master Long Ji said, today is not your first arrival. Since the ancient time, before the empty kalpa, clearly nothing has been obscured. Although you are inherently spirited and splendid. Still, he said, you must go ahead and enact it. How do we enact being inherently spirited and splendid? How do we actualize realization? The seven factors of enlightenment is from the Pali Canon. The Buddha outlined what he called seven factors of realization. These seven factors are both leading to enlightenment and our expression of enlightenment. And he created these factors to rafters that rise to the peak of the roof. And he said, just as in a peaked house, all rafters go together to the peak, slope to the peak, join at the peak, and all of them, in all of them, the peak is reckoned chief. Even so, the person who cultivates the seven factors of wisdom slopes to nirvana, inclines to nirvana, tends to nirvana. And the seven factors are mindfulness, investigation of the Dharma, energy, joy or rupture, relaxation, tranquility, concentration, samadhi, and equanimity. Well, the first one, mindfulness, which means pure awareness, attention. So the way to enlightenment starts with that, pure awareness. And mindfulness is present moment by moment without self-talk, without imposing on it personal meaning. Just to experience reality as it is without getting trapped in personal commentaries. Now, unfortunately, the, the word mindfulness has also, like many things in our society, has become somewhat of a commodity these days. You take a course of eight weeks, you become a guide in mindfulness practice. 
And then you can teach others. It's a shame that we, we, we do this with everything. You know, it's a, my mother, she's not an expert in meditation, but she actually had some exposure in the place she, she's been going to for years. It's a, it's a place where it's like it's a combination of a gym and a yoga place and there are also different classes and one of them has always been uh, some form of meditation and until about a few months ago they had someone who, I think it was a Zen teacher, who would come once a week to that place and teach meditation and guide them and they would sit together. And I'm not sure why, but they got rid of this guy, or he got rid of them, and he's no longer there. So they brought somebody else, but this time it's someone who is a, a practitioner and a teacher of mindfulness practice. So my mother thought she would give it a shot, and she went there, and, and she said it was very different. One of the things that uh, this person guided them to do is basically to sit comfortably, and then Stay comfortable. Basically, if you need to move, to adjust, to make yourself comfortable, go ahead. You know, you've got to be as comfortable as possible. Right? And they did sit, not a whole lot, but they did sit. And uh, she said she was very disappointed because she just wanted to sit. She, was, she, she had no problem with an instruction of do not move. Because she had some experience. But do not move is not restricting anything, or is not restricting what we think it is restricting. It's actually freedom. Because if you give the body everything it wants, it's not going to stop wanting. In fact, it's going to want more. To sit and not move is probably the most important aspect of meditation practice. Because there's an itch that can never be scratched. It doesn't matter how much you move, it doesn't matter how often you scratch it. But the more you scratch it, the more it itches. And the only way to recognize, to realize that this each can never be scratched is to not scratch it. And to work with the desire to scratch it, to work with the desire to move. Otherwise, we are forever being moved by thoughts, emotions, impulses, not even knowing where they come from and why we move. So mindfulness, maybe mindlessness, maybe that's better, but pure awareness, pure attention in which the self has no place, because there are no cows. And that's the first one, the first step in this. And the second one is Keen investigation of the Dharma. 
So investigation seeks out the characteristics, conditions, and consequences of phenomena and to understand its nature. To examine and see that all things are in fact subjected to causes, conditions, and effects. It means to verify through deep observation that nothing exists unto itself. Everything we look at, everything we study, is subjected to the same, same rules. Everything is constantly moving, changing, falling apart, becoming, unbecoming. It's a process that never stops. So to study reality is to study the self and to see that there is no self. So to, to have this curiosity, that's what's needed in order to develop keen investigation of the Dharma. The third one is energy, which is same as right effort, the sixth in the Eightfold Path. Investigation requires energy which develops in three stages. Inceptive energy shakes off lethargy and arouses initial enthusiasm. Perseverance propels the practice of contemplation without slackening, without taking breaks. Constantly to stay at it, to investigate. And then invincible energy drives contemplation forward. And the hindrances cannot stop it. To be disciplined, basically. To stay disciplined. Even when feeling tired, still stay on track. Fourth one is rupture, expression of joy, elation, delight, bliss. Now to see the inherent beauty in all things and to experience deep sense of gratitude for everything. Everything. The delight in the experience of life flow, prana, key. But this is not as in pleasurable feelings. This is much deeper than that. It's actually realizing again and again being one with all things. Realizing no separation, realizing being at home all the time. Fifth one is tranquility. In this context, tranquility means to be shaken, to not to be unshaken by loss or gain, blame or praise, and to remain undisturbed by adversities. This frame of mind is brought about by viewing the sentient world in its proper perspective. There's still the vitality and curiosity of the investigative mind, but it can remain undisturbed because it is deeply rooted in the understanding of a continuum that has no beginning and no end. Sixth one is concentration. This is the intensified steadiness of the mind 
comparable to an unflickering flame of a lamp in a windless place. It is concentration that fixes the mind and causes it to be unmoved and undisturbed. The correct practice of samadhi maintains the mind and the mental properties in a state of balance like a steady hand holding a pair of scales. Right concentration dispels passions and that disturb the mind and supports a state of purity and placidity. The concentrated mind is not distracted by sense objects. Concentration of the highest type cannot be disturbed under the most adverse circumstances. Now, through cultivation of samadhi, the practitioner quells the five hindrances, which the Buddha described as sensual desires, ill will, hatred, aversion, rigidity of mind and mental states, restlessness and worry. And the fifth one is doubt. Those are the five hindrances. And deep samadhi quells it. Quells the impulses to go with those five hindrances. So samadhi is referring to a state of single-pointed unification of mind. And as it develops, it leads to the seventh factor of enlightenment, which is equanimity. After realizing the maneuvering will not work, and we try a lot to get around, we try to create displacement activity and run into them, run towards them, embrace them. Doesn't work. We realize that the age cannot be scratched as hard as we try. Only then the mind can finally rest in a state of equanimity, not attached to varying circumstances and changing conditions. There's a poem that says, It is easy enough to be pleasant when life flows along like a song, but the person worthwhile is the person who can smile when everything goes dead wrong. So it's an equan it's equanimity that does not come from the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows. It comes from a place much deeper than that. A place that allows the highs to go high, the lows to go low. The mind is poised and balanced, watching phenomena as they appear. Which means to be supple, nimble, flexible, to assume the shape according to the need. To not be so impressed by drama, by storyline, by anything. So Yangshan said to the monk, it's not that there is not enlightenment, but what can be done about falling into the secondary. So what can we do about not falling into the secondary? And in saying, it's not enlightenment. It's not that there's no enlightenment. He's saying it's not that there's no enlightenment. What is he affirming? Is he, is he saying, yes, there is? What is he really affirming? In the awakening of faith, 
an essay attributed to Aspar Gosha, it says, original enlightenment is intrinsic, but non-enlightenment is accidental. The latter is an unactualized state of the same original enlightenment. It's pure. That is to say, a person is originally enlightened or saved, but suffers because he does not realize it and continues on blindly groping for salvation elsewhere. It's pretty clear, isn't it? We have never been separated. Yet, we feel separated and we believe it to be true. And by believing it to be true, we fall into the second year. Then I'll finish with another paragraph from the same book. <clears throat> the aspect of non-enlightenment. Because of not truly realizing oneness with suchness, there emerges an unenlightened mind. That's where delusion comes out of. And consequently, it's thoughts thoughts, emotions, these thoughts do not have any validity to be substantiated. And this is on us, right, to actually look at what gives it validity. It says, therefore, they are not independent of the original enlightenment. It is like in the case of a person who has lost his way. He's confused because of his wrong sense of direction. If he is freed from the notion of direction altogether, then there will be no such thing as going astray. There will be no such thing as delusion. It is the same with the man, with the person. Because of the notion of enlightenment, they are all confused. But if they are freed from the fixed notion of enlightenment, and that's a very important point the fixed notion of enlightenment. And he's saying it's not that there's not enlightenment. And here, to clarify, he says to be freed of the, of the fixed notion of enlightenment. And because of that, there will be no such thing as non-enlightenment, as a fixed state. Because there are people of unenlightened, deluded mind, for them we speak of true enlightenment, knowing very well what this relative term stands for. Independent of the unenlightened mind, there are no independent marks of true enlightenment itself that can be discussed. So, it's clear, but again, it's clear intellectually. But is it clear on a gut level? How do we understand it? How do we practice that? Because we do get caught up. How do we practice it when we are caught up? When we feel lethargy, when we feel loss of momentum, when we don't want to practice? when it's getting very close to our face and it's pushing us, pushing us, pushing us, and it's either 
break down completely, let it all go, or run away. But run away to what? To where? From what? Is it possible to escape? We'll end with Mumon's a poem by Mumon from a different koan from Mumon Khan. We said, rather than give the body relief, give relief to the mind. When the mind is at peace, the body is not distressed. If mind and body are both set free, why must the holy saint become alone? And in this case, why must we go from delusion to enlightenment? Why are we rejecting one state, searching for another? What's wrong with this? Who is saying this is not it? Who is saying insufficiency, incompleteness? Who is judging? By what parameters? Investigate fully. This is what we have to learn from the Buddha's life. Not just from his realization, but from everything he went through up to that point and everything he went through after that point. It's all part of the teaching and it's all part of your spiritual practice.